everybody welcome you back to your seats I guess it's time to get started I tried to delay as long as possible because <clears throat> when I told you you were stuck with me this morning it was just like a still silence and I could tell you were as excited as I was about it I'm kidding no I don't yeah I don't need your pity thank you though um, yeah no I am excited to share with you guys this morning so thankful for the opportunity and uh, as I mentioned before we are um, having the All About the Bible class under the Follow Me uh, umbrella, Adult Sunday School. And so you're going to get a little piece of that today. It's been modified from what I was going to share during first service. Well, I shared it during first service, but what I would have shared during the class. It's meant to be discussion-based, interactive, and so it's a lot of information that we would normally talk about, but it's just going to be me talking about it now, so you just get to listen. But I don't want the information to overwhelm you because the point of it, uh, there's just one main point. And so I think you're going to come away with that. And that's, that's the hope. So um, you can take notes if you want. I saw some people during first service writing as fast as they could in shorthand. You don't need to do that. I can give you an outline of this later if you want uh, the notes. That's totally fine. Just enjoy it as much as humanly possible. Um, <clears throat> And uh, was there something else I want to say? Oh, be before I get started, there uh, a lot of the presentation that is uh, that is here. Actually, I think you need to get it up on the screen there. <clears throat> you got it? Anybody know how to do that? Anybody in here know how to do that? Where's Pastor Ben? Does he know how to do that? I don't know. I don't know how to do it. Sherry, you don't know how to do it. There's Pastor Ben. Welcome, Pastor Ben, everybody. Thank you. I know how to do it. I just can't do it from here. I'm not, I'm not that powerful. So <clears throat> as I mentioned before, this class is an excerpt from the Follow Me Believers class that we're having. So we had to start the Follow class, which was kind of a foundations class for the Christian faith. Now we're having an all about the Bible class. And it's digging in deep to the realities about the Bible. Not just Bible study, but things about the Bible that we would have to look above and beyond for. So that's what... Uh, that's what the class is all about under that umbrella. And the first class was going to be, what is the Bible all about? So a couple of weeks ago, uh, my family and I had the opportunity to go to Hume Lake, which is up in the Kings Canyon National Forest, uh, Sequoia National Forest, right on the border there. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to go there, but if you haven't, you should really go there. They rent uh, cabins out. There's privately owned cabins within the Christian campground, and they're pretty affordable. There's all different types of sizes and and uh, ages of cabins, you know, you can get the rustic small cabin um, that uh, has a hole in the roof or something for really cheap, and then you can get the larger cabins and have multiple families staying in there. Really great place to go on vacation. <clears throat> and uh, we went there with my family, my wife, and our three boys, and spent some time there for a week. And uh, while we're there, there's a lot of things to do, including get poison oak, which is what I did. <clears throat> And one of my sons did too, so that's really fun. Um, but um, during the downtime, uh, my 
my oldest boy, Dutro, who's about to turn eight. He was the one I took on the camping trip yesterday, have a special time together. Um, he uh, discovered in a cupboard that there were puzzles. Now, we had never really done puzzles together, jigsaw puzzles together before, but he started to get interested in the jigsaw puzzles. So he pulls out this jigsaw puzzle. It's got 100 pieces, and it's the United States of America. And he puts it together really quickly. He's, he's intelligent. He puts it together. It's great. And uh, he's really fascinated about numbers. He's got a number for everything. He knows numbers really well. And so he wants to find the puzzle, the jigsaw puzzle, with the most pieces. And I think there was one in there with 2,000 pieces. And he pulled it out, and he said, look, Dad, this one has 2,000 pieces. And I said, yeah, we're never going to put that together. And he's like, yeah, but it has two. And as soon as he was saying 2,000, the bottom of it dropped out, and all the pieces went all over the place in this cupboard, nooks and crannies. I just thought, whoever go, whoever's going to put this... We try, it took as long to put the puzzle pieces back into the box than it would have just to put the puzzle back together. <clears throat> and they fell into nooks and crannies, and I just thought, man, the person who puts this puzzle together next time is going to be sorely disappointed, you know? You have a couple of pieces missing. But during the time... He also put together, but we did, we completed it together, but he started it, a puzzle that was 500 pieces, really small pieces, right? 500 pieces, and it was uh, a puzzle of one of, the, um, one of the golf course greens of Pebble Beach, okay? Now, I don't know what that looks like because I've never been there before. Um, if you've been there before, I want to be your friend because I think it's expensive to go to Pebble Beach. <clears throat> um, and uh, basically... The way that the, the puzzle was designed was, uh, there was there were multiple pieces of different shades of green. There was light green, there was a little bit darker green, there was much darker green, there was brownish green, and then at the very top there was a little bit of blue. Now, <clears throat> fortunately we had the uh, box with the picture on it to be able to put the puzzle together. Without that box, I mean it took us long enough as it is, right? Without that picture, we would not have been able to put the puzzle together at all. I mean, we were already trying to force, you know how it is, like this, I know this piece goes here, like it will fit, you know, I know it goes here, give me some scissors, tape, we'll make this fit. <clears throat> That's how frustrating a jigsaw puzzle can be. Uh, but we had to use the box, and with the box, it took us a long time to put it together. But the point is, without the picture of the box, uh, of the puzzle, it would have been nearly impossible to put this puzzle together. We would have lost patience quickly. Uh, but with the picture uh, on the box, uh, it was possible, not only possible, but uh, made it much easier to put the puzzle together. In a lot of ways, this is what the Bible is like. When you approach the Bible, you've got 66 books written by 40-plus authors over a span of about 1,500 years, and it's all got one message, but it's a big book with lots of things in it. And when you approach the Bible, especially for the first time, it can be intimidated, intimidating, and it's, it can be hard to tell what is the point of the Bible. But if you have a picture, as you put the pieces of the Bible together, as you, if you have a picture that tells you what the Bible is about, then it's a lot easier to put those pieces together as you go. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. What is the Bible all about? If we can have a picture as we read the Bible so that we can put the jigsaw puzzle pieces, as it were, for the Bible together in a comprehensive way, in a way that helps us to understand it, what would that picture be? What is the Bible all about? Well, if you were here on Wednesday, I don't know, a couple Wednesdays ago when I taught uh, on uh, a little bit of this topic and then a little bit of uh, infallibility and inspiration of Scripture and then a little bit on interpretation. If you were here 
You might see some same slides, but don't tune out because there's going to be some unique stuff. I think there's like seven slides. Is it seven? Seven slides, right? <clears throat> Numbers are hard for me. It's uh, three types of people in this world, those who can count and those who can't. <clears throat> and um, yeah, you like that one? You guys like it? You like math? Okay, I'll give you another one. There are two types of people in this world. Those who can extrapolate from incomplete data and let's move on. All right, um, what is the Bible all about? Well, the Bible is all about Jesus. In other words, if we have a picture of who Jesus is, and then we will be able to understand the Bible much better because the Bible is all about Jesus. How do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us so. That's how we know. In fact, Jesus said so. Jesus said that the Bible is all about him. He said so at least five times. Let's take a look at those verses. Matthew 5, 17, Luke 24, 27, Luke 24, 44, John 5, 39, and Hebrews 10, 7. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said on the Sermon, of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount when he was talking uh, to uh, people who were following him, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He didn't come to remove or take away the religion of Judaism. He came to fulfill it, and in fulfilling it, to bring something new out of it, namely himself. In Luke 24, 27, if you remember, Jesus was uh, walking with two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and uh, Jesus had just died and rose again, but they didn't know that. They were walking with their faces down, kind of wondering what they were going to do now because they'd put their trust and hope in this Savior, supposed Savior, who was dead and gone. Um, and Jesus was walking with them and uh, had to explain to them um, everything uh, concerning himself. And so we find two verses during that exchange that tell us that the Bible is all about Jesus. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was, uh, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, Luke 24, 27. And, uh, and then in the same exchange in Luke 24, 44, Jesus says, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's a catchphrase for the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. That's the whole Old Testament. They knew it as the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Sometimes it is called the Law and the Prophets. That meant the whole Old Testament because the Psalms were prophetic as well. The Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. That's the whole Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Jesus is saying that everything in there must be fulfilled concerning me. That's what he's talking about to those disciples. And then in John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus is talking to the unbelieving Jews. He's making an argument about himself being the Messiah. And um, he says this to them, to the Jews who've been studying the scripture for, for a millennium. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And then he goes on to say, yet you refuse to come to me and to have life. So he's telling them the scriptures that you study the scriptures that you spent your childhood learning and memorizing, the scriptures that you spend all of your life trying to obey or walk religiously uh, within uh, obedience to them, 
These all speak about me. They all point to me. In other words, you've missed the forest for the trees. You study the scriptures diligently, but they speak of me, and you refuse to come to me and have life. And in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 7, the writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus, quoting, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. The scroll being the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And so Jesus said that the Bible was all about him. We're going to look at three ways the Bible is all about Jesus. Actually, we're only, only going to look at two but if you were in the class, we would look at three. Three ways the Bible is all about Jesus. Jesus is the theme of both Testaments, the Old and the New Testament. He is the theme of each section of the Bible. There are eight of them. We'll talk about that a little bit. And he's the theme of every book. We're not going to talk about that just because we don't have enough time, but we will continue that in the class next week. So let's look at Jesus in both Testaments, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Messiah, there's an anticipation for the Messiah. In the New Testament, there's the realization of the Messiah. He's anticipated in the old, he's realized in the new. In the old, he's coming. In the new, he has arrived. In the old, Jesus is prophesied. In the new, he is present. I'm going to take a pause here and just talk about prophecy. When I came to know Christ at 23 years old, uh, there I, many of you know the story. I met Pastor Ross, and um, in, a, in a critical way, not a cur- curious way, I said, I have a lot of questions. Uh, because I was an atheist at that time. Um, I did not want to believe in God or in the Bible just because it was going to help me or have some kind of magic solution to the problems of my life. I knew I had problems in my life. I knew they needed to be fixed, but I wasn't just going to believe something for the sake of having my problems fixed. It needed to be true. Otherwise, it seemed vain. Well, prophecy is one of the things that convinced me intellectually. I mean, God was working in my life and meeting me spiritually and emotionally, so it was obvious that he was real, but what about his word? Is his word trustworthy? And prophecy was one of the things in Scripture that demonstrated to me that his word is trustworthy. Uh, prophecy in the Bible, it's unlike any other book. There's really no other religious book that has prophecy in it. It's, it might have so-called prophecy, but not prophecy to the degree of what we see in the Scripture. And by prophecy, I mean uh, being able to tell the future. So foretelling events that would come. Prophecy also means foretelling the word of God. You can foretell the word or foretell events and you can foretell the word of God. Both are elements of prophecy. It just has to do with God's word. But in regard to foretelling events, it totally makes sense to me that <clears throat> if God is real and he's all powerful, then he knows everything. And if he knows everything, he can tell us things that are going to happen that have not yet happened. And if something happens that he tells us is going to happen, then we will know that it was God that said the thing that was going to happen. And then we can trust God on every other element of uh, life, right? If I told you some amazing fact about your life that's going to happen soon, and I went into detail about it, and I wouldn't know, and it wouldn't be a coincidence, there's no way it could be a coincidence, and it came true, you would think that there was some, that I spoke with some authority, right? Well, that's true of God. He speaks with authority, and he demonstrates that through prophecy, Prophecy is one of the most convincing things regarding the truth of the Scripture. See, in, in regards to uh, unbelievers, um, the word that's used for, for unbelievers regarding belief or faith is unbelief, which is, a, which is different from disbelief. Disbelief usually has a connotation, uh, association of not having enough evidence to come to the conclusion that you're trying to come to. You, you, just, can't, you just can't believe it. 
um, because you don't have enough information. Unbelief is not a matter of having enough evidence. It's a matter of not having the will to believe, even if the evidence points towards that conclusion. So a difference between disbelief and unbelief. Unbelief is, we have all the evidence, I'm just not willing to believe. And um, that's just the way it is in this life. In fact, Jesus points that out in John chapter 3 when he says, this is the verdict, the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, and therefore they rejected the light. So the light is there, the evidence of life, the evidence of truth, the evidence of, of, of grace from God, truth from God, is there, but men rejected it um, because they were wrapped up in unbelief. They'd rather be in control of their own lives, even though that is uh, a fallacy. You can't be in control of your own life ultimately. And so this fact of prophecy is, uh, is very powerful because God is able to tell the future. He does it about Jesus multiple times, and it comes true exactly like he says it comes true. And so I don't understand how somebody could be in disbelief about the Scripture when you see prophecy. Unbelief is a whole other issue. It's a matter of the will. Disbelief, there's enough evidence to prove that the Scripture is trustworthy, reliable, and true. Um, but you can, So you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So um, both Testaments, Jesus in the Old and the New. He's prophesied in the Old. He's present in the New. In the Old Testament, Jesus is contained. In the New Testament, he is explained. In the Old Testament, he's enfolded. He's kind of shrouded by the shadow of uh, the Old Testament uh, realities. And in the New Testament, he's unfolded. In the Old and the New, in the Old, he's, there's the shadow. And in the New, there's the substance. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. In the new, there's types of Jesus. In, in the old, there's types of Jesus. In the new, there's the truth of Jesus. You have the types that point to Jesus, and then you just have the reality, the truth of Jesus there in the new. In the old, you have rituals that point to Jesus. All the sacrificial laws, all the ceremonies, they all point to Jesus. Uh, if you want an interesting read, I mean, Leviticus can be difficult to read, sure, but if you read Leviticus 14 about the Day of Atonement, it's very, very interesting. The the rituals and the types in there pointing to Jesus. Um, and so in the old, you have the, re the rituals of, of uh, pointing to Jesus. In the new, you have the reality of Christ. In the old, you have pre-incarnations. In the new, you have the incarnation. So uh, God appears throughout the context of the Old Testament. Those are called theophanies, when there's an appearance of God in some form. Um, they could also be called Christophanies if people think that it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Um, but... Uh, it isn't until the New Testament, the virgin birth, that the that Jesus, God, the Son of God, becomes a man in the incarnation. So in the old, we have pre-incarnations. In the new, you have the incarnation. In the old, you have the branch of David just budding. And in the new, you have the branch of David in full bloom. Another evidence towards the fact of the Scripture and also Jesus being the promised Savior. You have um, this genealogy in both Matthew and Luke that point to the heritage of Jesus, the ancestry of Jesus. And that was really important because the Jews expected that the Messiah would come with some prerequisites. In other words, he'd have to be several things, but one of the things he's had to be for sure within the ancestry is the son of Abraham because God promised to bless the world through Abraham's offspring, and that blessing would come ultimately through Jesus. And he would have to be the son of David because God promised David that there would be a king that came from his lineage that would sit on the throne forever. In other words, an everlasting kingdom. In other words, God himself would be coming 
to uh, somehow, as a descendant of David, to sit on the throne forever. So that's where the branch of David comes from. You have the genealogy from David to uh, Jesus, and uh, that's the branch just budding, David and his descendants, all the way to Jesus when the branch of David is in full bloom. And we talked about the difference between the Old Testament looking at the shadow uh, of uh, seeing the shadow of Christ in the Old Testament and seeing the substance of Christ in the New Testament. There's a verse in Colossians chapter 2. That's verse 17. Let's go ahead and read it. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So the Apostle Paul here is talking about things that had to do with the Old Testament dietary laws, restrictions, those kinds of things. And he said, listen, all these things that you guys are getting hung up on were just a shadow of what was to come. The substance, the reality is found in Jesus. This is something I like to share with people, especially new believers or people that are newer to the Bible. Uh, because usually when you pick up a book, you start at the beginning of the book and you read through to the end. That's how most books work, right? And certainly the Bible can be used that way. You can pick up and read in Genesis and read through. But uh, when you start in Genesis and you go through Malachi, uh, you're really reading about the shadow of Christ. So if you start in the New Testament, you're going to see the substance of Christ. And so if you're ever giving somebody a Bible, I recommend that you have them start in the New Testament because once they understand the substance, they'll be equipped, better equipped than to understand the shadow. Imagine you're looking down a hallway and you see uh, somebody's coming, but you can't see them. They haven't come into view yet, but you see the shadow. Right, And you can tell a few things from a shadow. You can tell what the object is. If it's a, Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a man. Maybe it's a woman. You can tell a little bit about the stature. But you're kind of limited on what you can see uh, when you see the shadow. But when the substance, when the object that's casting that shadow comes into view, then it makes the shadow more understandable. But you wouldn't just continue looking at the shadow, trying to figure out what the shadow is, when the substance is standing there. Right? The substance gives all the commentary you need on the shadow. And that's how it is with the New Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, casting a shadow in the Old Testament. You'll be able to understand the Old Testament better when you look at it through the lens of the person of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of what's being said here in this verse. By the way, this is a good verse to use for people that might be caught up in pseudo-Christian cults who kind of lean towards trying to obey um, some of the Old Testament laws that are fulfilled in Christ and do not apply to the church. Um, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He goes through a whole list of things that people were all caught up in, Sabbath days and dietary restrictions and all these things. And he says, listen, these were like, do whatever you want to do according to your conscience, but I'm just letting you know that these were shadows of things to come. They pointed to something. The point isn't to continue uh, meddling with the shadow when you have the substance. Imagine um, if your uh, loved one went on a trip, right? And they, <clears throat> they left a picture uh, for you so that you could remember them as they went on this long trip. And you have the picture, and every day you look at the picture and you just think, I just love this person very, very much. And you just keep looking at the picture. And every night, you look at the picture, you say goodnight, you kiss the picture, you put it by your bedside, and on, so on and so forth. And then one day, your loved one comes, comes home. A knock on the door, you open the door, and there's the person that's in the picture. Now, at that point, you probably wouldn't say, just a moment, close the door, and go get the picture and tell the picture how much you love the person, right? Now that the person is back, 
now that the substance of the picture is there, you would toss, not to, uh, toss the picture aside. I'm not saying we should do that with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is very, very important. But what I'm saying is that the picture is just a representation of the substance of that person, that loved one. And uh, in the same way, uh, Jesus is the substance of what's contained in the Old Testament, and he will help us understand the Old Testament better. So it's important that we study it, but we also need to look at it in the correct way, not in the way where we're trying to do everything the Old Testament says, but in the way that we see what the Old Testament is pointing to in the reality of Christ. And then we do whatever the New Testament affirms about the Old Testament, that's what we do. In other words, our new life in Christ, the reality of the church, is lived out according to the law of Christ as revealed in the New Testament which contains Old Testament principles as well, but that's a whole other study. So these are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. It's easy to understand the shadow once you have the substance to literally, in this case, shine light on the shadow. That's what Jesus is. He is the light. And so three ways the Bible is all about Jesus. We looked at Jesus being the theme of both Testaments. Now let's look quickly at Jesus being the theme of each section. I said there were there were eight, so let's look at those. Jesus in each section. In the law, uh, first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch's called the, law, the writings of Moses, the law of Moses, you have the foundation for Christ. You have creation, you have uh, separation of Adam or Abraham from the other nations, so God can create a new nation uh, that he would be able to bring the Messiah to and give his promises to and through. Um, the nation of Israel was always meant to be a channel and not a container, uh, but they saw themselves as a container, so God had to do some workarounds. Um, they weren't just supposed to receive God's blessing for themselves, but they were supposed to share it with the rest of the world. And so you have the foundation for Christ in the law. Now, as we go through these things with the section, and then we'll look at how each book of these sections uh, represents Christ as well, there's going to be a lot of information. Part of the point of what I want to uh, the, the reason I want to show this to you is not so you will remember this information. I don't even remember this information. But what's really interesting to me are the different nuances about the, test, the New and Old Testament, the, every section of the Bible, and every book of the Bible, how they all have their unique nuances about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I used to think, just because I like round numbers and stuff, I just thought, <clears throat> there's 66 books in the Bible. Why 66 books? 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Those both sound like random numbers. They're divisible by three. That's all I could figure out. That's as far as I can get with those, right? Um, but they just seem like random numbers. So why 66 books? Well, I think the easiest answer is why not 66 books? God can do whatever he wants, right? But as you dig a little deeper, what's really interesting as you look at the books of the Bible and the sections of the Bible is you see these little nuances, like almost taking a diamond and looking at different facets of the diamond and seeing different elements and characteristics of that work. And that's how the Bible is. It's a diamond. And as you look at the different facets of the diamond of the Bible, you see different realities about Jesus. And so it doesn't matter how many books there are. Um, and, I mean, the number isn't important. It's the content and the dynamic uh, contained in the content that's important. So 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. And every single book and every single section displays and reflects a different nuance of Jesus. That's what's amazing to me. And as you look at it, all these different nuances and facets come together to paint this picture of who Jesus is. And so it's pretty amazing, getting goosebumps just thinking about it, it's pretty amazing to see as you kind of pull this apart, why 
are there these different books? And a lot of the books seem like they're saying the same thing. So why do we need all these same books? But if you look carefully, they each have their own nuance. And we're going to go through that quickly, and you're going to see some of that here. That's the main point. Not to remember all this, but just to know that every part of the Bible has a nuance of Jesus contained in it that is important to us. So law, you have the foundation for Christ. History, you have the preparation for Christ, right? The nation is created, and now they're preparing to bring the Messiah into the world, even though they didn't know that. Poetry, you have the aspiration for Christ, right? My soul thirsts after the living God. And Psalms there, prophecy, the expectation of Christ, all the things that are foretold about when Jesus would come, what he would do, what he would be like. And in the New Testament, you have the Gospels, which is the manifestation of Christ. Christ is now on the scene. In Acts, you have the propagation of Christ, so the Gospels going out and people are being saved through the message of the risen Savior. And then in uh, the Epistles, which just is a fancy uh, word for letters, they're just letters, the letters which are from Romans through Jude, those are all letters to churches uh, and or individuals. Uh, you have the interpretation and the application of Christ. In other words, they're telling us how to interpret who Jesus is and how to apply those truths into our lives. And then in Revelation, you have the consummation of Christ, the final stages of redemption that God is working through his um, anointed one, Jesus Christ. And so let's look at each of these uh, each of these subsections. So Jesus in the law. In Genesis, you have the election of the nation. In Exodus, you have the redemption of the nation. In Leviticus, you have the sanctification of the nation. In Numbers, you have the direction of the nation. I'm going to pause for a second. Do those words uh, ring any bells for us? They're a part of the Christian life. The same work that God is doing through his work of setting aside a nation and preserving it for his purpose is the same work that he does in us individually through the act of redemption, the drama of redemption in our lives, election, redemption, sanctification, direction. And so you'll see those as we continue on. Deuteronomy, the instruction of the nation. Jesus in history, you have Joshua, the possession of the nation. Judges, the oppression of the nation because of their disobedience. Ruth, you have devotion in the nation. So during this time of disobedience, you have a remnant within the nation of Israel that was faithful and loyal to the Lord. Ruth and Boaz and others like them. And you have this little window into um, the life of faith of uh, individuals that were living in this nation that God had set apart but that had been rejecting him. There were a remnant of believers in the, in the nation there. First Samuel, you have the stabilization of the nation. Second Samuel, the expansion of the nation. First Kings, so it stabilized, it expanded, and now it starts to decline because they go back into wickedness. Again, the declension of the nation. Continuing on in Second Kings, you have the deportation of the nation. He warned them. He said, I promise you, like if you obey me and live for me and seek me, you'll be blessed. Your land will be blessed. You'll be able to stay in the land. You'll be protected from your enemies. Um, you, will be, you will be blessed. But if you... Uh, turn away from me and seek after other gods and, and disobey me, then I'm going to remove you from the land. He told them that over and over again, and they said, we don't really care. And they got removed from the land, deportation. They were taken into captivity. In First Chronicles, you have the deprivation of the temple. Second Chronicles, you have the destruction of the temple. So you can see the way that things declined here. And it's, just, it's true of a life that um, turns away from Christ as well. We experience deprivation, destruction. 
And so in Samuel and Kings, first and second Samuel and first and second Kings, you have just a kind of a side note here, you have the prophetic prophetic view. There's a lot of information contained in first and second chronicles that you also see in first and second Kings in particular, first and second Samuel as well. Um, and that is the prophetic view. But in Chronicles, you have the priestly view. So you have the same events looked from two different perspectives. One from a prophetic view, what's, what's happening, what's coming, and one from a priestly view, the religious aspect of the nation. And then in Ezra, you have the restoration of the temple. In Nehemiah, the reconstruction of the temple. Now they're turning back to the Lord, repenting, and being placed back in the land. In Esther, you have the protection of the nation. Now let's look at poetry. Jesus and poetry. In Job, mediation by Christ. Job is thought to be the earliest book of the Bible, which is amazing because in Job 19.25, before the law, before any other promises, anything else, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end I will see him stand upon the earth. Isn't that pretty amazing that Job would say that? There's a lot of other prophecy in Job as well. But he was just saying that my Redeemer, my mediator, he lives. And in the end I will see him stand upon the earth. The earliest book of the Bible, before the law, before... Abraham and, and the Mosaic Law and everything. Not before Abraham. How about that? Job. I think before Abraham, yeah. Maybe he's Job. Anyways, that's a whole other study. All right, let's keep going. Psalms, communion with Christ. Proverbs, wisdom in Christ. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You can find that on the bottom of the milkshake cup at in and out <coughs> Some... I gave that to as homework for the uh, children's ministry one time. I uh, said, take your, let, tell your parents to take you to In-N-Out. Pastor Adam said, take you to In-N-Out and get you a milkshake. <laughs> if you look at the bottom of the cup, many of you know this already, you can see verses down there. On the milkshake cup, it's Proverbs 3.5. On the regular drink cup, it's John 3.16. They got it on the burgers as well. So just get one of each and uh, you can have a Bible study. <clears throat> That's the wisdom in Christ. Ecclesiastes, Satisfaction in Christ. Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books because before I became a believer, um, I felt like life was meaningless. And so uh, Solomon, through Ecclesiastes, he was was, uh, ringing my bell, you know. He was uh, singing my song. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I just thought, you know, I was working at a decent job as a land surveyor and uh, there's things that I liked about it, but it just felt like vanity. Like you're going to work, save up for retirement, you're going to retire, and then you're going to die, and all your stuff goes to somebody else. And that's essentially what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. And uh, that just bothered me. It really bothered me. I mean, it was like an existential dilemma for me, you know, my existence. What's the point of life? Uh, It just seems pointless, meaningless, uh, like grasping the wind. It's vanity. Well, Solomon points that out. And if anybody had anything in this world worth living for, it was Solomon. Right? He had wives and women, he had wealth, he had wisdom, he had wine, and everything else that starts with a W. <clears throat> and uh, he, um, he you know, enjoyed the pleasures of sin and, and materialism for a season, but at the end of his life, as he's writing Ecclesiastes, he goes through and he says, it's all va- in vain. It's all vanity. There's, not, there's no lasting joy or purpose that comes from this. And at the end of... Ecclesiastes, he essentially, he says, kind of paraphrased by the Westminster Confession Catechism, um, where it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the conclusion that Solomon comes to at the end of Ecclesiastes. He says there's really nothing else worth living for except for a relationship with our God um, and our Redeemer. 
So I really like that book. Read it if you're ever feeling down. It really depresses you, and then at the end, it just lifts you right up. So it's good. <laughs> Song of Solomon, we have the union of Christ. Uh, Jesus is the lover of our souls, right? Jesus in prophecy. So you have the captivity. I talked about this a little bit before. So God said, do these things, and you'll be able to live in the land and be blessed. If you don't do these things, it's going to remove you from the land. Well, they didn't do these things, so they got removed from the land. Before the captivity, God was already warning them through the prophets. He was exhorting them, turn back to me and uh, be blessed and have life. If you don't turn back to me, you're going to experience the consequences. So we see that in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea through Zephaniah. And then during the captivity, we have anticipation. What is God up to? What's he going to do? Well, we look back in, uh, backward to destruction and lamentations, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, looking at the, the, the um, city of Jerusalem in rubbles and, uh, in rubble, and then also the, the destruction that was going on and saying, wow, we have sinned and, and uh, we are experiencing the consequences of what's happened um, in our relationship with God. And Ezekiel looks forward to religious restoration. Can these, can these dry bones live? And, and, and Daniel looks forward to political restoration. So again, a lot of similar... Uh, aspects and realities contained in these books, but different nuances. You have religious restoration in Ezekiel, political restoration in Daniel. Jesus in prophet, uh, prophecy after the captivity. You have the restoration. Haggai talks about religious restoration. They're building in the present. And then Zechariah talks about religious res restoration from the standpoint of looking towards the future. And then in Malachi, you have moral and social restoration. So all these different nuances contained within the different sections and works of Scripture. Jesus in each section. So we talked about the sections of the Old Testament, the laws, the foundation for Christ, history, preparation for Christ, poetry, aspiration for Christ, prophecy, expectation of Christ, gospels, manifestation of Christ. Uh, so now starting in the New Testament, the gospels, the manifestation of Christ. Let's take a look at the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The theme of the Gospels, the theme of Jesus contained in the Gospels. In Matthew, he's the king. In Mark, he's the servant. In Luke, he's seen as the man. And in John, he's seen as God. In truth, he's all four. Presented, how is, how is the Messiah presented in the Gospels? Well, he's presented to the Jews in Matthew, to the Romans in Mark, to the Greeks in Luke, and to the world in John. So you've got the Jewish nation where Jesus was promised and prophesied to, and then the Jewish nation, uh, the nation of Israel is in bondage, captivity, um, uh, political uh, oppression by the Romans, and then beyond that you have the civilized world, spoke Greek, um, the Greeks, and then beyond that you have the rest of the world. And so God uh, speaks to all four through each of the Gospels, the nuances, right? Why do we need four Witnesses, testimonies, truly one would have been enough. Um, but we have four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all play their part and they all have different nuances. So the ancestry, we see the ancestry of Jesus and Matthew beginning with Abraham. Mark doesn't give us a genealogy. And in Luke, we see it coming from Adam. Obviously, anybody who's born is a descendant of Adam, um, but they just needed to point that out. It went from Adam to Abraham to David down to Jesus. That was important. That was a prerequisite. The Jews would have rejected anybody who didn't have the as the Messiah who didn't have the lineage. Now, it didn't really help that he had the lineage because they rejected him anyways. But in the future, they will receive him as their Messiah. And so in Luke, he's from Adam and John. Where, where does God come from? He is of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 
with God and the Word was God. Traced. In Matthew, he's traced through the royal line. Mark, again, doesn't have a genealogy. In Luke, he's just traced through humanity. This is the descendant, his, his ancestry. Um, and John, he's traced back to eternity, um, the beginning and the end, ancient of days. The symbol of Jesus in each of the Gospels. In Matthew, he's, he's the lion. In Mark, he's the ox. In Luke, he's the man. And in John, he's the eagle. And these all have their different explanations as well, which we don't have time to go into, but let's look at some more. Emphasis. In Matthew, Jesus is taught. In Mark, he's wrought. In Luke, he's sought. And in John, he's thought. It's really fun, right? Remember? In uh, the provision of Jesus, what does the Messiah provide um, in these different nuances in the Gospels? In Matthew, he is righteous. He provides righteousness. You see that all through the Gospel of Matthew. In Mark, he provides service. In Luke, he provides redemption. And in John, he provides life. The key verse in each of the Gospels, 3.15 in Matthew, having to do with righteousness being fulfilled. In Mark 10.45, uh, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. In Luke um, 19.10 is the theme verse. In John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and life more abundantly. The key word in Matthew is sovereignty. The key idea, key theme kind of sovereignty in Matthew. In Mark, it's ministry. In Luke, it's humanity. And in John, it's deity. Again, these different nuances reflecting a different aspect, a different facet of Jesus. And uh, regarding the Savior from the Gospels, in Matthew, he's the promised Savior. In Mark, he's the powerful Savior. In Luke, he's the perfect Savior. And in John, he's the personal Savior. You can have a personal relationship with him. Jesus in Acts. Acts is the propagation of Christ that we're talking about. Jesus told his uh, disciples um, before he ascended that uh, they would go and preach the gospel to all nations beginning in uh, Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it was fulfilled exactly as he said it would be or as he commanded them. So first in Jerusalem and Judea, Acts chapters 1 through 7. Second in Samaria, Acts chapter 8. And third to the ends of the earth, Acts chapter 9 through 28, and even down to this present day when we stand, where we stand here together. So that's Jesus in Acts. Jesus in the epistles, to be continued. If you want to know how Jesus is in the epistles, you have to come to the class <laughs> next Sunday. So... Um, and uh, we'll continue. This is half of the all of, uh, what is the Bible all about class. Um, and we'll continue the rest of it, how Jesus is in the epistles, how he's in Revelation, and then how he's in every book of the Bible um, and the unique ways that we see him represented in each book of the Bible. The point is the Bible is all about Jesus. That's what we can be sure of. When we have the picture of Jesus, uh, the person picture of the person and the work of Jesus in our minds, we'll be able to understand the Bible better through that. God's two words. You have the written word and the living word. In the written word, we see um, we have the scripture. In the living word, we have the Savior. In the written word, we have propositions, assertions, facts about God, about life. And in the living word, we have the person of Christ. In the written word, biblios means book, in the living word, we have logos. It means word. So you have, you have the, the book, the written language that's been given to us, and you have 
the living language of Christ himself given to us. In the written word, it's in language, and in living word, it affects our life. Jesus said, the scriptures testify about me, as we talked about before, John 5, 39. And we have enough time to read this poem. So this is a poem by um, uh, an unknown author. I'll just read it to you here. I find my Lord in the Bible wherever I chance to look. He is the theme of the Bible, the center and heart of the book. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the lily fair. Wherever I open my Bible, the Lord of the book is there. He, at the book's beginning, gave to the earth its form. He is the ark of shelter, bearing the brunt of the storm. The burning bush of the desert, the budding of Aaron's rod. Wherever I look in the Bible, I see the Son of God. The ram upon Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky. The scarlet cord in the window, and the the serpent lifted high, the bronze serpent on the pole. The smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook. The face of my Lord I discover wherever I open the book. He is the seed of the woman, the Savior, virgin born. He is the son of David, whom men rejected with scorn. His garments of grace and of beauty, the stately Aaron deck. Yet he is a priest forever, for he is Mechizedek. Lord of eternal glory, whom John the Apostle saw, light of the golden city, lamb without spot or flaw. Bridegroom coming at midnight, for whom the virgins look. Wherever I open my Bible, I find my Lord in the book. The Bible is all about Jesus. And if again, if you'd like to hear more, you're welcome to register for the class. And I'll, I'll have, uh, if you'd like to request an outline of this, you can do that. I'll have it for everybody that's in the class. But if you want an outline of this, I'd be happy to provide it for you as well. So you'll have to ask, though, because I'm not going to print it unless we uh, are going to hand it out. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love and your faithfulness to us. We thank you so much that you revealed yourself to us through the work and person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that as we look full in his face, we would be able to see the realities of the Scripture come to life to us, Lord. We'd be able to understand the pieces of the, jig- the jigsaw puzzle that is your word. And it takes a, a book that the world sees as uh, archaic and uh, religious and irrelevant, and it makes it living. Your word is living and active. Because it's not just about things or places or people or religious realities, Lord. It's about you, Jesus. It's your love letter to us. You have revealed yourself to us through your word. And as we look into your word more through the lens of Christ, we see you in greater detail. We're able to understand better. and We're able to apply the things that we understand about you to our lives in more significant and meaningful ways. So help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be people of the book. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you've given us the word of God. Help us to love the word of God because it'll help us to love even more the God of the word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rock's podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.